I am uh, Casey. I'm a compulsive overeater and a bulimic. And I want to thank Tammy for having me share. Thank you very much. I have shared at this podium a few times before. And each and every one of those times, I've regretted not being able, as I get near the end, to get through all 12 steps. So I've written myself a little crib sheet because with any luck, I will get through all 12 steps. Um, but first, I'll tell my story and my history. Uh, I have almost died from food-related causes five times in my life. Uh, only the last one was self-induced, and uh, that's what got me in these rooms. I walked in these rooms, I don't think by accident, on Hiroshima Day of 2001. So August 6, 2001 was my first meeting. Uh, it was the Hill Street meeting in Santa Monica. I know this being podcast, so that might be like a foreign geography for many of you who are listening. But uh, it was foreign geography for me. I didn't know how to get there. So I was one of the people who raised my hand mid-meeting and said, when they said, have any newcomers walked in since the meeting began? I did. So that was my first meeting. And um, really fast on my near-death experiences, because then I want to talk about the ones that I've caused myself, because that's why we're here. We're not here about medical misfortune. Um, I, um, my mother had toxemia, so I was induced, so I was being poisoned in the womb. I then came out of the womb, or I guess our blood combination had toxemia. Uh, I then came out of the womb with something that the doctors called celiac. I realize now it can't be celiac because celiac is incurable, but it was like it. And for the first two and a half years of life, I lived on... A, the stark just soy milk for once I could eat soy milk and bananas. That is what I lived on for two and a half years only. Um, I, everybody was acting like this was normal in my house, and I really thought it was normal. I don't think I had a, I don't think I had a really strange food, food childhood with food, but I'm just describing it to you because the fact that I didn't think it was strange is strange. Uh, you know, uh, at, from two and a half till six, I was healthy. At six, I developed those kinds of scary allergies that some people get. Uh, I had hives and was allergic to 300-some-odd foods and a few pharmaceuticals. By 12, I outgrew all of them except a couple of pharmaceuticals to which I'm still allergic. So then I was healthy again. And at the age of 21, I developed type 1 diabetes, classical onset. Most people are familiar with type 2. Type 1 is your pancreas just stops working. Mine doesn't work. And you have to take insulin from the outside. You can't eat it because it's a protein and you would break it down and digest it. So I take several shots a day and know what my blood sugar is nearly constantly for the last several years. I have a device attached to me. None of those things were self-caused. The one that was self-caused was that um, when I was raised in a home that was intellectually caring, politically caring, personally as caring as they could be, which was not extremely caring. And uh, so I, you know, was living wanting justification for living all the time. I didn't feel I had a right to live. But I wasn't aware of that because I was smart and clever and funny and therefore that gave me a right to live. I also was raised in New York City. Uh, my mother is somebody who people besides me have called a narcissist. She's been actually diagnosed a narcissist and I've dealt with that in many 
forms of psychotherapy, including long-term psychoanalysis. I fell in love with the man I still love who still loves me when I was young. I mean, I've gotten over a lot of that stuff, but that's my background. And uh, so I lived in New York, ended up in a career that I've now had for 31 years, um, where I kind of take care of people. I mean, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a physician, but I kind of take care of people. So I'm, I'm good at it. So lots of people liked me. Lots of people thought I was useful for them, with them. So I didn't realize how much self-hatred I was walking around with because I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it because whenever it started to rear its little head, I would have breakfast, lunch. At that point, I was drinking. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, you, know, uh, ha- you know, having a cocktail with somebody. And it was really easy because thousands of people knew me and hundreds of people loved me and probably many hundreds of people at least liked me. So I would easily be able to be with somebody who liked me. And if you like me, I like me. And I could be with one or two of you a day easily. And my husband loves me, I'm happy to say. So and he's around most of the time. So, um, you know, I didn't know how messed up I was. Uh, what happened is that for a reason that made career sense for my husband, I thought I would retire and die in New York City. Um, I went, left for college, came back for graduate school, stayed there for many years. Uh, my husband had a career opportunity in Los Angeles that made sense to move. It wasn't imposed on me. He came home one day. He said, would you consider moving to Los Angeles? I said, why? He told me why. I said, if you get that job, take that job. So uh, that's what happened. And uh, it was kind of a whirlwind courtship from the time he came home that evening until we were here. Well, he was here in probably five or six weeks. And my then 12-year-old daughter and I were here four or five weeks later. We waited for her to finish her second semester of seventh grade. So those of you who have children, imagine a seventh grader moving across the country. You know, that was fun. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, here we were. I did not work for the first time in my adult life for only about five months, but I was taking time to find the dry cleaner, the shoe repair, a house, a doctor, you know, all that stuff. And uh, so I started to work. And my daughter, who's now 12, um, we're not supposed to talk about other programs, but I will briefly describe what happened to me because without talking about another program, I can't tell my story. So I was, I became a pothead with a drug that I had always loved. Uh, I then, about two years later, joined the beverage program because that was the, those were the rooms that spoke to me. Uh, and I was going there successfully. I got many years of sobriety in there and uh, it's whack-a-mole right the food popped up you know I don't want to say that I had never compulsively overeaten in my life I had compulsively overeaten in my life I had come home from high school Uh, my mother was then working I'd get home at about 3.30 by the time one or both of my parents got home at about 6.30 I had often consumed half a loaf of bread with butter. It might also have been adolescent food cravings. I was never very heavy, ever. I probably weigh as much now as I've ever weighed in my life. And for those of you who are on the podcast, you know, I am what doctors would not call overweight. It's what I call overweight. And uh, so um, what happened is that when I became diabetic, 
type 1 uh, in college, I learned a trick that supposedly about 20% of all female diabetics learn at some point or another, which is my form of bulimia. When I identify as bulimic, I've never stuck my finger down my throat, but if I don't take my insulin, I don't metabolize my food. And it works. So uh, diabetics used to die of starvation because there was no outside insulin. Within two or three weeks, that's what would happen. And uh, so I would overeat and not take the next shot or not take as much as I needed, whatever. It worked. It's something I did occasionally. I don't think I even did it as much as once a month. But if I was feeling bad about what I weighed, I would probably do something like not taking the right amount or any insulin six or eight times a year. Well, surprise, I put down my other anesthesia. I do believe I only know how to live life two ways with anesthesia with steps. And those are my only choices, you know. And uh, so I put down my other anesthesia and the food pops up. I was eating all sorts of things I shouldn't be eating. As a compulsive overeater, I now know, but then I knew as a human being and particularly as a diabetic. So I was running purposely high blood sugars, which kept me quite thin. Uh, I never looked, in my opinion, but others too. Nobody ever talked to me about it, anorexic. But I was, in my opinion, attractively thin. And many other people thought so too. You know, so, um, you know, so that's, that's how I lived my life. I had gotten used to feeling the way it feels with high blood sugars, which, you know, if you're not used to it, it feels awful. I got used to it. So through all of this, I was high functioning. I mean, I had a career. I was going to the gym. I was working out. I was engaged in all sorts of activities. I was fine. But what happened is after I put down my other substance, the food got substantially worse, which meant that my form of bulimia got substantially worse. Now I was not taking the right amount or any insulin frequently. And so when I say I walked in these rooms in 2001, August 6th, uh, I walked in having just come back from New Hampshire on vacation off a hospital bed close to coma um, because I had put myself into a physical state where I was in real danger. Um, my daughter and my father went on a vacation with me in New Hampshire for that particular vacation. Our daughter was then 14. Uh, my husband couldn't go. He was working too hard. We met my father who then lived in New York and uh, at, a, at Logan in Boston and we took a bus off. By that evening I was vomiting uncontrollably. The next morning I knew I needed a hospital. My dad was looking at me. He's a hypochondriac, by the way, was, who died at almost 94. So the, only time, so the only time I ever really screamed at my father, who I loved, and I did scream at him once, and it was about this. It was years earlier. But he was complaining about something, and I said, Dad, between you and me, I'm sick, so shut up. You know, and, uh, you know but um, he was wonderful, and he went to the hospital with me. Our daughter went on vacation with our friends, which is why we had gone there. So uh, the doctor said, he asked the doctor, I've heard, I was in and out of consciousness, uh, will she live through this? And the doctor, who had never seen this, he's in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and he was youngish, and he had never seen this, said, I think so, I'm not sure, the next 24 hours will tell. So this is one of the ways I've recovered more in program by being more humble and more understanding. What I said for, first, for many years following that incident was, I wish I had been conscious more often during that 
first day because I would have assured him I was going to live because I had been sicker at diagnosis or at least I felt sicker at diagnosis. So I knew I was going to come through this. Um, what somebody pointed out to me several years after uh, that event was that I actually had no idea. You know, that, the fact that I felt sicker didn't mean I was going to come out of it. You know, so be humble. The doctor probably was correct. I have assumed he didn't know what was going to happen. Well, of course, he didn't know what was going to happen, but I assumed that he was, had less knowledge about this than I did. He may not have. He may have been telling not only his truth, but the truth. You know, uh, he, he probably didn't know, have any idea what would happen, but the next 24 hours would tell. So here I am many years later. I obviously lived. Uh, because I had been in the other program, I knew about the steps, and I knew they worked. I had a sponsor from day one in that other program who I still love, who's still my sponsor. And uh, I was curled in a fetal position in that bed in the hospital in New Hampshire doing steps two and three. I knew that I needed to be restored to sanity about this new insane thing I had been doing, uh, you know, that I'd been doing for years, but doing intensely for about a year. And um, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do it without some sort of faith. I was certain about that. Uh, so I was there doing steps two and three. I got back to Los Angeles and um, called up the OA office. There was no internet at that point, uh, or if there was, it was nascent. And um, they sent me a meeting directory, and I already described to you going to my first meeting. I found defining my abstinence very, very, very difficult because there were people who were talking about, and many of you talk about, many of you talk about, you know, the variety of no sugar, no flour, that's one variety that many of you talk about. I mean, there are hundreds of abstinences, although John's definition of the overall one is correct, you know, uh, refraining from compulsive overeating at or, main, or going towards a normal body weight. But... Um, substance abstinence um, people were talking about three meals a day people were talking about eliminating certain foods and food behaviors what I wanted and probably still want although I don't feel any even subliminal craving for this abstinence but what I surely wanted for my first few years in the program was three meals a day nothing in between at the most with that definition I got seven months I often got a week, two weeks, three weeks, you know, sometimes just a few days. Uh, but the most I got was seven months. There's a woman sitting in this room right now who is my dear friend and who was my sponsor for, I think, about seven or eight months. I burned through sponsors. I'll get there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so um, I, she looked at me. She said, don't you feel like a failure? I said, I feel like a total failure. It's horrible. I can't get Why don't you find something you can keep that's not ridiculously simple? You know, that's not just keep coming back. Because I know somebody who that is that person's abstinence. It's fine for him. It would not have been fine with me. I would have felt that was like, so what? You know, that's not me. So the abstinence I have now kept for closer to 11 than 10 years is... Um, if I eat it, I metabolize it. It's a real bulimic abstinence. Uh, I take insulin for all the food I eat. I also have a food plan. My food plan is no 
you know, refined sugars, no extremely sweet fruits, you know, I can name them if you care. You know, mangoes and watermelons are bad things. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's unless I need it for blood sugar. And I sometimes need these things for blood sugar. My blood sugar is well, well needed. But other than that, and that's an abstinence I can keep that I actually am, feels like an effort. And, but it feels like less of an effort, much less of an effort, if I work the steps. So uh, what I want to do, because I said I wanted to do it, not because I said I wanted to do it, what I want to do is I really do want to go through the steps. So I wrote some crib notes for myself, um, because at this time at the end I'll tell a little more of my personal story. Um, well, step, the principles of the steps, right? Step one, honesty. I already told you, I knew I was a compulsive overeater. I had no doubt. I was hospitalized near death for being a compulsive overeater. That qualifies. No problem there. Uh, and by the way, I think it is many people's problems. I have a friend who's been sober for 30-something years. He focuses on the fact that, you know, in the 12 steps, so many people say the most important word in the first step is we. He says the most important step in the word in the first step is admitted. You know, that I can't do it without you guys. You guys are my cheerleading for the steps. The steps are sometimes difficult. But... Um, I had to admit, but that was not my story. That was no problem. Uh, hope, uh, second step. Um, I knew it had worked. I knew it had worked for me in my other program. I knew hundreds of people in my other program. I knew dozens of people I cared about in my other program. I knew the 12 steps worked. I had never walked in the rooms of AA. I'd only heard about it, but I had hope because I knew it worked and I knew the 12 steps worked. And they knew OA existed. Existing was pretty good. You know, you don't exist for decades unless something's going on here or you're run by a charlatan. And I didn't think it was run by a charlatan since it's a not-for-profit. So, uh, you know, um, then faith. Well, I was... I told you a little bit about my family, but among the other things they were were humanitarian proselytizing atheists. So, uh, you know, my mother, my mother has really said, if you uh, believe in God, you're not paying attention. You know, and so I was raised that way, was not quite as adamant as my parents, mom, or my mother in particular. My father was less adamant. Um, and in college... I was converted to a particular very worldwide, not obscure religion. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to have to rush through the steps. That's five minutes. Uh, and uh, so, um, but I get on my morning, I'm, I, I begin most mornings on my knees praying to a God I don't believe in. And it centers me. I've got no problems with there being things in this world I don't understand that are nonetheless true. That, I, that I've got no problems with. Step four, step four is about courage, right? Um, I think I know myself. I'm sometimes fooling myself that I know myself. I do not know myself until I get something down on paper, look at it, say, oh, that's how I feel about it. Oh, that's my part in it, etc., etc. And so that's step four. I'm rushing through these. You can ask questions if you want because I have little time left. Step five is integrity. Uh, and... Um, I can tell people what I'm feeling. I can tell people, particularly in these rooms, what I'm feeling. Uh, so I was reminded of something the other day. When I first started to come to OA, I went home and told my 
husband a story, uh, no names of course, and there's an appositive in there that um, somebody had taken food out of the garbage and that's what stopped him short. He said, food out of the garbage? There is nobody in these rooms who that's surprising to, right? I mean, you know, there is nobody in this room who that's surprising to. That's what we do, right? You know, uh, we eat frozen food, we take it out of the garbage, we burn food, we do all this stuff. So integrity, I can tell you guys because you've done the same thing or worse. If we get, well, let's not be moral about it. You've done the same thing or more extreme. Um, step six, willingness. Step six is the bitch. I'll always stay step six is the bitch. I mean, step six is tough. I have lived two, and now in my third years, devoted to step six. When the going gets tough, I go to step six. You know, and uh, it's, it's really difficult. And I try to look at my character defects and tackle them one or two at a time. That doesn't mean for that year I'll only dedicate myself to one or two. But for a day or a few days I'll only dedicate myself to one or two. If I start saying, well, I've got to cure these, I don't have that many. But if I've got six, seven major character defects, I can't spend a day tackling six or seven of them. I just can't. Uh, step seven's humility. Um, seven-step prayer, my favorite part of the seven-step prayer is that it does have an an out would be an exaggeration, but it has a caveat. It says that stand in the way of my usefulness to you and others. Those are the character defects I want removed. If I am late for many appointments, I'm not. That's not my problem. But if I'm late for many appointments, it's a character defect that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and others. If I'm living in the United States, particularly in New York, right? If I'm living in Brazil or Italy, that is not a character defect that stands in the way of my usefulness to others. It's really not. You know, so there's no reason to think that I've got to get rid of that character defect in Brazil or Italy. You know, and, um, but I have to get rid of the ones that are standing in the way of my usefulness to uh, you or others. Eight, discipline in action. I am one of those people. I have a friend who's not a sponsee, but I'm helping her through some of the steps these days who had very few people on her fourth list. Um, I had very few people on my fourth list. She said, blah, blah, blah. I said, I had many more people on my eighth list, eighth-step list, than I had on my fourth-step list. I thought I had harmed more people than I resented. And I found out I resented more people than I thought, but not seriously. I once had a sponsee in this pro- a sponsor in this program who said, right, then anybody you've ever been annoyed with who you still remember being annoyed with, that was a big list. But, you know, it's, uh, but I, you know, I had more on eight. Nine's forgiveness. Uh, go, behave differently, act differently. Don't say, I'm sorry, say I was wrong. Say why you were wrong. Say exactly what you did. It's sometimes difficult. Uh, sometimes people go tell you to take a hike. Uh, most of the time they don't. Uh, and you have to at the end, here's the tricky part, you have to at the end say, is there anything else you would like to talk to me about regarding how I behave towards you over time? And you can occasionally get stories, uh, but uh, it's, that's what you have to do. Uh, step 10 is acceptance, especially with the people we love, especially with ourselves. You know, it's again, you do nine, you make amends promptly. Eleven, uh, knowledge and awareness. Um, you know, people call it, you know, other things, but I call it knowledge and awareness because I don't believe in a creator God, but I do believe in connection. I do believe in love. I do believe in unity. I believe in 12-step unity. Is that 
Time's up. So you don't get to 12, but my, but, but I'm performing a 12-step service right now by talking. So uh, that's one of the things I do. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast, and the questions will stop at 9.35. Thank you so much for your share. Um, do you have any kind of daily practices, prayer, meditation, in the morning or in the evening, 10th step, anything like that? Do I have any daily spiritual practices? Any kind of practices, yes. Um, as I say, I begin my morning without a creator God. I'm most knees praying to whoever. I mean, I'm not sure who I'm praying to, but I begin my mo- morning most days on my knees. I say I am powerless over food and. Uh, I am powerless over uh, judgments I may make in the moment. Please help me hold on to them for very few seconds. I then usually recite the third step prayer. I happen to attend a meeting that has, often I attend this meeting, not daily, that has five minutes of meditation near the end. On those days I do not additionally meditate, even if given the opportunity. On other days I meditate sometimes. So I would say that I only meditate three or four times a week, but I begin... 350 out of 365 days on my knees praying to a God I don't believe in. Thank you. Um, what does step three look like to you when you it says turn your Lord life over care and for something that you create? What does it feel like to turn my will and my life over to HP because my HP is not conventional? Is that fair enough? Uh, I am turning my will and my life over to the instruction manual that I have in my big book. Uh, I am turning my will and my life over to my two sponsors and three programs who so far I've never been given a wrong piece of advice by either of them. I am also turning my will and my life over to a community of 12-steppers and other people. My husband's pretty brilliant I'm spiritually. I mean, he's an atheist too, but he's a brilliant spiritual person. You know, and, uh, you know, and I listen to other people, but particularly I think that's an instruction manual of the big book. It says in the forward to the first edition to show people precisely how we have recovered. I think they mean it. Thank you. Yes? It didn't take me long to figure out something. If this is too succinct for you, please speak with me afterwards. But it's worked for other people asking similar questions over the years. The credits don't transfer. They don't transfer. But the study habits help. And oh, we can, you know, and we can talk about it later if you want. Yes? Great, thank you. Um, so you said six and seven, and you know, you've been tackling these things you know, for a few years now. And... How do I work six and seven and you 
thought you heard the word tackling from me. I don't think you heard that word from me. If you did, I'll be surprised. I'll listen to my tape. I think it's coming from you. But uh, I don't do it. I don't tackle much. That's just who I am. Um, I, uh, how do I work six and seven? Well, I try to find out when I'm uncomfortable, what I'm uncomfortable about. I'm usually uncomfortable about something that I've done. I mean, let me use a perfect example. And for those of you who may know the Joe and Charlie tapes, I got this insight into my life from a Joe and Charlie story. The closest I've ever come to a nasty divorce was the breakup of a business partnership many years ago. And um, we haven't spoken since the day we broke up. And we were good friends in graduate school. What uh, happened is that I had a business. I invited this friend into the business. And then the business was taken over. Uh, What was my part? My part was not having my eyes open to who this person really was, including the fact that I was warned by at least my husband and some other people about who this person really was. The person really has a certain amount in common with my mother. In retrospect, I wanted to give my mother another chance. Well, you know, she didn't do it the second time well either. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, but, um, you know, but my part was not listening to people who I should have trusted and being too anxious to do something. When I have a, I'm going to tell a different anecdote. In my opinion, there are only two women I know who are fabulous mothers. I mean, people are varying from bad to good. The two superstar mothers I know, one's in L.A., and she was raised by a difficult mother. And she says when she knows that she wants to do something with one of her children who are now all young adults, but she's certain she wants to do something. Somebody's come home late and she wants to ground them for a month. You know, she knows it's the wrong thing. When you want to do something viscerally and you've been raised the way I was raised, it's wrong. (laughs) Yes? Do I have too much fear about when I'm going to take care of myself having been raised by a narcissist, whether I become selfish, I think is what you're talking about. Um, I actually don't have that fear. It is so difficult for me to become selfish. Some people think I'm selfish, but they usually are just confusing the fact that I'm a New Yorker and efficient. I mean, you know, um, you know, I mean, I'm efficient. There was an article in the Smithsonian Magazine years ago. I could send it to you if you want. You know, why people think New Yorkers are rude. And the article basically says they're wonderful. They're just quick. You know, and, uh, you know, so I'm not worried about becoming selfish. Maybe I should be, but I'm not. Sure. So how, what do I mean by self-cause when I walked into the rooms? I was, what got me in the rooms, I might have gotten here anyway, but what got me in the rooms was frequent 
frequent, frequent, running purposely high blood sugars when I did not want to be killing myself. That was self-caused. Maybe it was self-caused out of extreme neurosis. Maybe it was self-caused out of, you know, but I was doing it. It was not my fault that I had any of those other events. It was not my fault that I became a type 1 diabetic. I mean, people aren't sure if it's a virus or genetic, but I didn't become a type 1 diabetic by doing something. I became, uh, you know, nearly dead by running purposely high blood sugar so I could be thin. I was acting like I cared more about being thin than being alive, and that was not my conscious intention to act like that. Yes? Can you read 1 through 12 again? Oh, the concepts? Yeah, you can find them on the web. Well, they're not always identical on the web. So here we go. Here's the ones I like. There There are varieties, but they're the ones I like, and I can give you a website. One is honesty. Two is hope. Three is faith. Four is courage. Five is integrity. Six is willingness. Seven is humility. Eight is discipline and action. Nine is forgiveness. Ten is acceptance. Eleven is knowledge and awareness. And twelve is service and gratitude. Yes? Has my body image stuff gone away and how do I deal with it now? It went away for several years and it's come back. Um, I have put on weight in the last year to year and a half I put on depending upon what day 10 or 12 pounds I was able to accept myself 10 or 12 pounds less than I am now but I have been and thought I looked good and probably did look good 20 pounds lighter 22 pounds lighter you know I was never 35 pounds lighter I was never real thin anorexic thin I'd like so I get up in the morning now and say oh I don't have any clothes I look good in well that's because I don't look good to myself I can somehow accept that there's only one way to do this to get to the weight I'd like, and so far I haven't been willing to do it. There's no secret. You know, you eat less, you exercise more, both. And as I've become older, I also have to eat less and exercise even more. So thanks. (laughs) 